0: Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, Please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website. All right, before I officially start, uh, I want to tell you that this talk um, is basically an introduction to some topics that I'm going to be looking at in the next month. Um, it's actually a bit of an introduction to the topic that I'm going to delve into at my online wake festival that's happening on the 21st, the 22nd and the 23rd of May. So I want to tell you a little bit about that um, and then we'll we'll get stuck in. So basically every year for the last eight years, I have run a festival in Belfast, Northern Ireland called Wake. And if you know the Irish culture, a wake is a type of um, ceremony you do where, you know, after someone's died, there's a wake where you mostly now it's become where you go, you drink, you tell stories, you laugh together, you cry together, but it's a way to mourn the loss of something. Um, and in mourning the loss of something or someone, they... Are part and become part of you. Because as you remember them and as you laugh and cry and tell stories, a part of them remains alive within you. And so Wake is this kind of celebration and painful time as well, but it involves pub crawls and music and art and talks. Um that helps us to somehow sometimes bid farewell to things that have died in our lives that we have to mourn so that we can remember the good. We can leave the bad behind. We can move forward with some of that within us. So that's what WAKE is. i say it's a five-day festival in multiple locations in Belfast. However, because of the current situation, uh, we had to cancel last year, and I didn't want to cancel a second time. So what I'm doing instead is a little flavor of WAKE. I'm flying back to Belfast. I'm taking over one of the bars that we use uh, for WAKE called the Sunflower. Um, taking over the upstairs and there's going to be musicians and poets and uh, talks uh, all live streamed from that location three hours a night or if you're in America it'll be three hours a day over Friday Saturday and Sunday uh, you can attend it all or you can dip in a night and you will have access to all nine hours in fact after the fact I'm also going to take the audio and I'm going to split it into nine sections so that you can listen to it as like a prolonged podcast um, some of the performers uh, is Duke special fantastic one of the our most respected musicians uh, in Ireland uh, Padre uh, Barry Taylor, um, and others. Um, and of course, I'll be there giving talks and doing interviews. So it's going to be called Chaosmos because it's all about how the, the cosmos order has chaos within it. Uh, This is a term actually from James Joyce uh, from his book Finnegan's Wake. So I thought it was kind of a a nice uh, homage to him as an Irish writer and also Finnegan's Wake. And this is Wake to use this beautiful pregnant term by Joyce, this chaosmos, the idea that chaos and cosmos are actually intertwined. Um, So that's the theme. And that's also going to be what I'm going to be touching on today. Uh, so today's talk is called Impurity Culture, and I think I call the subtitle uh, Projective Identification and Our Fear of Otherness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have three sections. Uh, the first section, I'm going to look at what purity culture is, I'm going to define it, I'm going to look at its history right from its beginnings to its contemporary revival um, and its dangers. So that's the first part. Then I'm going to look at the mechanism of purity culture. How does it work? How does it function? And then thirdly, I'm going to look at some technologies that are designed to um, critique purity culture. Uh, You could call them impure practices or what I call decentering practices. So those are the three parts. And we're not going to be able to cover things in depth. The the second part is the one I'm going to put more time into. Part three, I'm actually giving a talk about that online at the end of the month. So I'll probably only touch on that in a small way. Um, And I'll try and get through part one as quickly as possible. But I'm also going to take my time. uh going to keep going. Uh, if we touch the R, and you need to go, just feel free to leave. You'll find this if you want to come back and listen to the rest after the fact. So you can quietly excuse yourselves at any point. Um, so I'll try to kind of like, you know, sum it up as quickly as possible. <clears throat> but I do want to take my time because I think this is a very important subject. And as I say, it's not like we're in all room together. So you can come and go dip in and out as you'd like okay so first of all what is purity culture now you probably know that within kind of post-christian and progressive circles the term is often used to define this phenomenon that happened in the late 20th century among some conservative evangelical groups where there was an encouragement to abstain from sexual intercourse before marriage right so It's connected to these purity rings um, and this kind of a, say, mostly evangelical conservative culture, but also you find it within the Catholic Church, Anglican tradition to some extent. Um, There were books and courses that were connected with this. But that is not purity culture. Now, that is a subspecies of purity culture. And like any subspecies, if you study that, you will find the essence of purity culture, absolutely. Uh, but it is only one species, one subspecies of, of purity culture as a whole, one appearance of it, one form that purity culture takes. So purity culture, if you define it in its essential form, is a type of division between what is pure and what is impure, a division between what is good and what is bad. What is wise, what is unwise, what is light, what is dark, what is being, what is nothingness. And purity culture dates back to the very beginnings of civilization and the very beginnings of religion. So you see the invention of civilization, the invention of religion is intimately tied to, well, two things. Language, which we probably won't get into too much, but it'll come up a little bit. The invention of language and... Um, uh, and then, what to do with excrement? What to do with waste? So, right back at the beginnings of civilization, you can see that people started to treat their literal shit differently—that not just as like something that you, you know, you excrete and then you leave behind, but started to have uh, an, a, a reaction to it, uh, a abhorrence to it, and we have the beginning of rituals of what to do to keep the dirty that expunges that comes out of us, how to keep ourselves separate from that. Now from this, obviously that's a very physical type of purity culture, but then we get the development of how to deal with insiders and outsiders, people who are part of our group and people who are not part of our group. And you have within many religions very uh, strict and quite um, exhaustive lists of what to do with various bodily excretions and how to deal with dirt. Now, this has very practical uses because too much dirt causes illness and disease, like one of the things that have helped humans live to the age that we do today um, is cleanliness and antibiotics, but also just washing, right? This to be clean is, uh, you know, uh, you get rid of germs, you get rid of disease, and uh, less external forms that can kill you so that you can die internally over time, right? So, instincts are designed to prevent external forces of death so that you can die internally, right? Whatever. So, um Purity culture goes right back to the beginning. Just wanted to talk about that. It right back to the beginning of civilization, to the beginning of religion. And now I want to jump to the contemporary world, right? Purity cultures um, are rife today. They always are there, but we live in a situation where there is a religious revival. There is a revival of various purity cultures. And I want to talk about three of those very quickly. Um, And the first, of course, is COVID. Okay, right. We are facing a worldwide pandemic. And in a very literal way, we are trying to protect ourselves from a virus, from something that is dirty, something that is unclean, something that is dangerous to us. And we have all sorts of rituals that we're doing and all sorts of activities to protect us from that. But of course, with COVID, then rises all of these types of anxieties that people have. So especially if people have um, obsessive structures in terms of already anxieties to do with germs and uncleanliness or order where everything has to be, you know, ordered within their house. Um, you know, this causes all sorts of anxieties. But COVID is, of course, generating. And for, if you think about it like the very first thing that was in short supply was toilet paper right? that's not a coincidence. Toilet paper is used to wipe away dirt. You put it into the toilet, you flush it away, right? So toilet paper was the one that people concentrated on because it was the most kind of not useful. And yet, of course, symbolically, toilet paper is wiping away the dirt, the germs, the internal germs, right? A virus is internal. So there's a lot of symbolic significance to toilet paper. Uh, And then, of course, masks and uh soaps and all of that kind of stuff right that's that were being sold right there's a thing of being clean so there's covid that's an obvious one just wanted to mention it very quickly but i want to connect it with two other kind of purity cultures that we're seeing today because they are interconnected people aren't making this connection which is weird right they're not thinking dialectically but there is connection between these and i'll try to i won't be able to go into detail but hopefully you'll begin to see how these might be connected So the the second purity culture is big tech, right? Technology. And by technology at the moment, I mean uh, computers, apps, software, this kind of of social media that we use, right? Tech is always a type of religious purity culture. If you look at sci-fi movies, right, there is a reason why uh, they are sterile environments where you have spaceships that are like have a morgue aesthetic or an apple aesthetic right there is a sense in which tech provides purity and cleanliness not in the way that uh, a vaccine will or whatever but in some sort of way that it'll be a very sterile clean environment and of course tech now promises with algorithms to get rid of the other the dirty other, the other who thinks differently from you, who looks differently from you, so that you only see what you want to see. And with that, um, I, I, we're going to interconnect a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to talk about this more in a second. But the, the danger of that then is, the more you cannot tolerate uncleanliness, the more you cannot tolerate the unclean in yourself and in the other. The more the other becomes monstrous. So the the irony is. Uh, the more purified and sterile a technological environment you create, the more that the, the repressed will return in explosions of the monstrous other, right? So you see this in a movie like, um, Alien, right? You've got a sterile spaceship. And of course, in the sterile spaceship, then you have this monster, this impure, um, absolute mother other, right? This, 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 this kind of all devouring creature but when you look at the creature it's salivating it looks like a tumour it has acid for blood pussy acid right this absolute monstrous other these are connected and that's what I'm going to come back to in a second but I don't want to say too much about that now but I want to say that tech promises protection from the other so in virtual reality and all of that you can create an environment where you're meeting the same you're meeting either real people who are like you, and then you can mute people who are conflictual, who bring out conflict. Um, Or you can meet characters that are created, right? That are just kind of like that you can interact with in a non-toxic way. But even if you think of things like OnlyFans, you know, not that there's anything wrong with OnlyFans, but it's giving you sex without toxicity, right? You can have sex without the danger of... Embarrassing sexual encounters or misunderstandings or the dangers that come with actually talking about sex with somebody else and trying to negotiate your sexual fantasies with somebody else. What you can do is you can contractually go onto a site and pay money so you can have the fantasy without the danger of the toxic other. So it's the other without subjectivity, right? So these again are ways to try to create uh, less danger in our lives and it's perfectly natural for us to do this this is actually what children do right children are um, go through this psychotic structure where they you know they play with trucks and they want to destroy you know they, the, the way the child thinks is pure and impure and uh, you know these shooting you know killing the other or a little child who's playing with a doll with purity but has the monster under the bed or in the cupboard right which is really inside them but they externalize it into the other right so tech is the second one where you see the rise and the revival of purity culture. Um, oh, I'll mention one thing as well about um, AI. Uh, will I talk about this now or later? Um, yeah, AI. So interestingly, if AI becomes a reality in a significant way, um, AI will be divided, just like us. To be a creature of language means to be someone who is divided, right? You're divided within yourself. And um, interestingly, again, just thinking about sci-fi for a second, uh, whenever you see artificial intelligence, you see that its immediate um, manifestation is what Melanie Klein would call the, the paranoid schizoid position, right? So what happens is a machine arises, becomes cognizant, becomes a creature of language, um, and then sees something dirty and other, which is humanity, something that must be gotten rid of in order to protect The non, in order to bring non-contradiction back, in order for there to be wholeness and completeness, it must get rid of an external virus. So, of course, think of like Terminator as an example of that. But probably the best example of it is, um, 2001, right? So in 2001, you have Hal and Hal is, uh, cognizant. It is, um, it's a, it's a creature of language. And it's interesting because Hal has a contradiction within itself. And the contradiction, if I remember rightly, this is close enough, is that HAL has to protect the people on the ship. That's his order, right? To protect the the ship and those who are on it. But also has this command to keep a secret, the secret of the mission, which ultimately puts the ship and the people in the ship into danger. So you see within HAL the division of what it means to be a subject you love someone and you hate them you want to shout at someone and you want to keep quiet you love someone and you hate someone right the 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 ambiguous or the um antagonistic uh uh self-divided nature of subjectivity is within hal and so what does hal do well hal becomes a paranoid schizoid right who takes the internal contradiction and externalizes it and and tries to literally uh purge the ship of the crew. Right. So which is which is the psychotic structure, right? Is the attempt to get rid of the contradiction by putting it onto the other. Right? All structures do that to some extent. Right? So that's that's tech. And then finally a political purity, right? So we live in an age at the moment where increasingly we see people who have political views that are different from our own increasingly uh, in toxic ways. And we feel that we are toxic to them and they are toxic to us. And our desire is to either consume the other or vomit the other out. So to consume the other means I take your otherness, which is really my otherness, but I take your otherness and I make it into mine. So I literally take your difference. I consume you into my social body so that you think like me, you act like me, you look like me. And if I can't do that, I vomit you out. Right? I get rid of you. I want to expel you. Right? Those are the two very primitive responses to otherness, consumption, and vomiting. And you see this with children. A child will put something in its mouth, and if it can swallow it, can kind of can integrate it into its body, it will swallow it. Otherwise, it will spit it out. Um, by the way, the, the, the other two forms of embracing the otherness of the other is tolerance. So tolerance by where you kind of go like, well, we have to work together. We have to be in society together. So you keep your dirtiness hidden from me, right? You keep your otherness away from me and we'll be fine. So certain things we don't talk about, right? As long as we don't talk about those, we can tolerate each other. And then the fourth is beneath all of our differences, we're all the same, right? The new age response, right? Beneath all of the streams of our different traditions and our different things, we all are 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 suffering from the same source. Now, in all four of these, otherness is rejected, right? So in the first, otherness is rejected because I want to consume it. In the second, otherness is rejected because I want to vomit it out. In the third, otherness is rejected because I want to just don't talk about it. And in the fourth, otherness is rejected because, hey, we're all the same. We're all ultimately the same. Now, this hints at the idea that what is really scary about the otherness of the other is that they expose my otherness to myself, right? So when I meet you and you've got weird beliefs and practices, and I don't like you. You're monstrous to me. You're weird. I don't like what the way you raise children, the way you think about the world. It's, it looks awful to me, right? If I start to hang around with you too much, I see myself through your eyes, and I start to think maybe I'm the monstrous one. Look at all the things that I take for granted as just being correct and right. Maybe I'm wrong, right? So now I'm seeing myself through your eyes, You're being an instrument of my further transformation. And this is profoundly destabilizing for us. We don't want that type of destabilization. In fact, we have all sorts of psychedelic enlightenments and various other things to avoid the other, to to avoid otherness, to experience what in psychoanalysis is called the imaginary, but the, the idea of sameness, you want everything to reflect something of yourself because it's not the other that's terrifying. It's your own otherness that is terrifying. Right, Now, that's going to get us to, ah, yes, where I want to go next, the mechanism of projection. Now, in order to look at this, oh, yeah, I want to say one more thing, by the way, is uh, the, the critique of purity culture, before I get onto the third section, or se- second section, is the critique of purity culture really starts in a systematic way with the Apostle Paul. Right. So the apostle Paul literally calls Christians the trash of the world, right? The excrement of the world, the, the dirt of the world. Now, this is fascinating because he's not identifying his community as pure, but precisely taking on its impurity, precisely looking at that impurity. And somehow in that embrace of the impurity, something of that is freeing and transformative. The very act of acknowledging that you're the outsider, you are the trash, is somehow a powerful, transformative moment. Now, Paul, then, if you look at the Gospels that are written later, but, you know, the synoptic Gospels are coming from an earlier source that's potentially, you know, like influencing Paul, but in the Gospels you have always the questioning of who's inside and outside, what's clean and what's unclean. Uh, in Kierkegaard's language uh, Jesus is the ultimate anti-wisdom, anti-ethical figure because He's always questioning what we take as ethical, who's good and who's bad, and the wisdom of who's in and who's out, right? He's always questioning that, putting this into dialectical relation where you realize the insiders are the outsiders, the outsiders are the insiders. Just like to find your life, you must die. To get into the light, you have to go into the dark, right? There's a mixing of this where purity culture creates this strong dividing line between pure and impure. This is a dialectic. Weaving of these two, a chaosmos is occurring here, right? So you see this early critique. While purity culture grows within religion, you also find the first critique of purity culture within religions. Then in philosophy and theology, you have probably the greatest um, critique of this in the work of Hegel, uh, the German philosopher, who talks about, who shows how we always try to get rid of our antagonisms and our contradictions and our uh, our own lack uh, in a variety of destructive ways. And in Hegel's work, you go through all of these ways to try to overcome, try to get rid of the impure, the, the dirty, the other. And then you realize at the end of this long trek of reading Hegel that there is something of ourselves in the other. That what we're trying to expel is a part of ourselves. So Hegel's the high point of that critique, um, and then uh, in the contemporary world, the high point is Freud, and then what what happens after the the invention of psychoanalysis, the discovery of neurosis. Um, and so that's what I want to look at in part three now, is because. Freud, although I'm going to look at Melanie Klein, Melanie Klein's notion of projective identification to try to help us unpick how this how this purity culture arises. Now, before I go any further, I just want to make a distinction between just general violence and destruction that you see within nature, right, within the universe itself, and that is also found within human society, just as it's found when you watch nature programs. And a particular type of destruction and evil and violence that is connected to us being creatures of language, to us being humans, right? That's what we're going to look at. And to understand that, we need to understand projection and projective identification. So very quickly, Freud is a discoverer of projection. And what projection is in a nutshell is if there is some part of myself that I cannot face, I put it onto somebody else right? So we put parts of ourselves onto another, and then we see that part of ourselves in the other. Now, it can be an ideal thing, a good thing, or it can be an abject thing, a horrible thing. I'm going to mostly concentrate on the abject because that's the topic of this conversation, but I will also maybe reference a few examples of the ideal, right? So projection is where you take some part of yourself that you... So... the. Yeah, some part of yourself that you can't um, reconcile yourself to and you put it into the other. And you do it in order to protect that part of yourself or to punch it, right? You protect it or you punch it. So, for example, if you know me, we're sitting down and you're deeply depressed, you might put the little bit of hope that you have that's somewhere inside you that's basically... Dead, right? That you you can't even face looking at because with hope, as you know, with Pandora's box, hope can be the most painful of things, right? So this part, this little bit of hope that's in you, you give to me, so you project onto me, and you see and say, "I'm, I'm saying, I'm your analyst." Um, you see that I have hope, right? And you and you like that. You identify with this, right? That I I have that hope that's actually within you. And what I can do is very gradually, over time, help you see that that hope that you've put in me is actually within you. And we can kind of encourage that little spark to get brighter and to maybe be the instrument of of change. So that's putting something good into the other, right? Um, by the way, oh yeah, so... That's good. Bad would be a bully, right? Maybe a, someone who is vulnerable, feels vulnerable in their home. Maybe they've been be hit with their, by their parents or something like that. And they feel this profound humiliation and this profound vulnerability. And so what they do is they find someone to project that onto. They are humiliated. They are vulnerable. And then they punch it, right? So hope That's an example of someone, you put it into me in order to protect that little part of yourself. The other with the bully is you put that in, the bully puts it into you in order to punch it, to fight it, to reject that part of themselves, right? Um, So projection is just the mechanism where we do this. Projective identification is uh, where (sighs) we project onto the other and then we identify with it, or the other person identifies with it. So, depending on what type of identification we're talking about, I can project, uh, anger and frustration onto you. I project it onto you. Um, and I keep pushing you. I keep saying you're intolerant. You're angry. You're frustrated. And eventually you get angry and frustrated that I keep saying you are, no, I'm not frustrated. I'm not angry. And then you're like, I'm not angry, right? Now you are identifying with the projection. You have acquired it. This is called, called acquisitive identity, uh, um, projective identification because you're acquiring, taking it into yourself and actually becoming the, what the person is wanting you to be. Or there is what's called attributive projective identification where I put it onto you and you don't necessarily take it on, but I keep, I put it onto you. I see it in you, even though there's actually nothing you're doing that, that identifies with that. So these are types of projective identification. One where I just attribute things to you that aren't in you. But then two, where I attribute things to you and you actually acquire them, you internalize them, you become the screen. You kind of, you're, you are the screen upon which I'm projecting, but you kind of take on those, those characteristics. Just like the victim of the bully actually feels the humiliation and the vulnerability within them, that is being put onto them and it's felt internally. So this is projective identification. Um, and this is very important because... Although it sounds crazy at first, like this is such a basic mechanism. It has actually a number of functions, right? So one is communication. One of the ways when you go to a party that you meet people and and talk to them is that you project certain things onto them that probably aren't anything to do with them, right? You project certain things on and then you want to talk to them, right? Because you've projected something of, say, ideal onto that individual, then you strike up a conversation, so it, it creates the possibility of communication. And of course, if it's non-pathological, then you get to know the person. You know, there's some of that projection they take on. You discover that they're different as well from what you imagine, and so a relationship starts. So, projective identification allows for relationships, communication. Uh, it's also a defense mechanism. Obviously, it's a it's a defense against parts of ourselves that we either want to protect or destroy. Um, three, it is, let me see if I can remember all of these. Um, uh, what would be the third? So it's the defense, a form of, oh yeah, primitive love primitive love, where like whenever you first fall for someone, you do a lot of projection sometimes, which is fine, but you kind of obviously want to get beyond that. Otherwise, you get into kind of an unhealthy type of relationship. But early on, two people do a lot of this projection onto each other. And then fourthly, It is the site of transformation. This is why it's good, right? Projective identification can be bad and where we take our own darkness, our own brokenness, and we put it onto another, um, but it's also the, the instrument of possible change. And what I mean by that is in analysis, for example, it's only as you allow someone to project stuff onto you that you become aware of what's going on within them. And as you become aware of what's going on with them, you can start bringing that up. You can start very slowly helping them see that they have, uh say, what Melanie Klein calls a paranoid schizoid position where there's a type of paranoia about the other and a schizophrenic splitting between you and other. That this is actually a reflection of something that's going on in you. Now, that has to be done very subtly and very carefully because... Projective identification is a defense mechanism. It is something designed precisely to protect you from this knowledge and this insight. And so it has to be done very, very carefully in order for it to be effective. But as you begin to realize that many of the things you are fighting are actually parts of yourself, you stop this putting of your own darkness onto the other. This is called scapegoating, by the way. So scapegoating is where you take The conflicts in a community, all of the conflicts that are happening that threaten to destroy that community, and then you find a scapegoat, literally a goat in the old days, that is then the carrier of all the impurity to bring purity back into the culture, right? So this is a very, structure we're always trying to find a scapegoat. Who is the other that we imagine? If only we got rid of them, everything would be great. Where we take our own stuff and we put it onto another and have the fantasy that wholeness lies in just getting rid of them, right? Whoever that other is. Once you begin to have a conversation with your own unconscious, if you're able to cultivate a curiosity with your unconscious, and then a conversation with your unconscious, you can begin to realize that, like, for example, a lot of people who've come out of, say, conservative Christianity spend the next couple of years being really angry and at those types of people. Of course, they're not angry at those people. They're mostly angry with that part of themselves, right? They're, they're fighting some of their own kind of uh, disavowed or repressed um, experiences. So that is kind of like partly the mechanism. And this is called beautiful soul, by the way. Hegel calls this the beautiful soul. I think it's come shelling, but the beautiful soul is where it's that very kind of hippie thing where you try to, you see yourself as pure and you try to be as pure as possible, but then you cannot tolerate your darkness and so you put it out into the other so you see this for example if someone's alone and they always think there's somebody breaking into their house right there's always there's an intruder right there is no intruder unless there is like if there's really knocking on the door and whatever but if your mind always goes there that intruder isn't out there. The intruder is inside you, right? It's not, it's not, a, the intruder is not outside the window. The intruder is a part of your disavowed self. Um, or if you think that there's sharks under the bed or there's someone in the cupboard or anything like that, that is a part of yourself. Um, you, again, of course, you see this very much in children, right? Children before they get to, um, what's called the depressive stage. <laughs> the depressive stage is actually a good thing. Melanie Klein calls it the depressive stage is really where you can tolerate ambiguity. You can tolerate unhappiness. You can tolerate the dark, right? You can, you can, you can see your unknown face. You're not always putting it onto the other, but before you do that, you know, there's always this sense of the, the child putting what is not able to be um, put into language, putting it outside And by the way, if that happens in an extreme way, you end up, when you're an adult, with what's called primal agony, right? Winnicott causes primal agony, where you're always terrified that some disaster is going to happen in the future. You're you're profoundly terrified, especially at night, often it's at night, of some impending doom. And the good news of psychoanalysis is that the apocalypse is not going to happen. It already has, Right? You're terrified of something that has already occurred. That's what a trauma is. Something has happened, but you haven't been able to put into language, put into words, and so it it arises as something in the future. When really it's something that has not been tolerated from the past. One of the rules of a parent is um, in the uh, work of uh, Wilfred Bion uh, is to he calls he calls these two things um, beta and alpha. Uh, I think it's called, was it the beta experience and the alpha experience? The beta experience is when a child is experiencing something they can't put into words. It's called a beta moment. It's a, and it's, it's something they can't have words for. They go into a temper tantrum. And one of the things they do is they, they throw all of this out and they project it onto the parents. The parents feel it. They acquire the aggression of the child. They feel it in their bodies. They feel stressed. Their heart rates go up. But a healthy parent takes that uh, non symbolized experience and they create an alpha experience. So, what they do is they alpha beta size the experience. They, they put it into language, they alphabeticize it. So, they put it into language, you start to help the child put language to the, the temper tantrum, which then lowers the temper tantrum. And when it's put into language, it goes. So, even things like panic attacks, you know, as you begin to alphabeticize, what the trauma is that's causing this, you can kind of minimize and, you know, dissipate the panic attack. So what, the reason why I want to spend some time on this notion of projective identification is I want, we need as much as possible to try to be aware of that tendency within ourselves not within the other, because that's another <laughs> projective identification. It's always the other who needs to know this, but how do we do it? And then how do we tolerate the being projected upon without acquiring those projections, without taking them on? Because here's the problem, right? The reason why I'm saying all of this may sound very abstract, but it's not. This is the petri dish within which war happens, right? With projective identification, where we're all putting our own darkness onto other people, we're creating our pure culture, or at least we have rituals for how to purge our culture, purify ourselves, and then we, then we have, on the other side, a more monstrous other, right? The other is more and more dangerous, more and more bad, and we move from conflict to war. And war is the inability to have conflict. Conflict is when I can sit down with you and say, you don't like me and I don't like you, but hey, we, we're living in the same place. We're going to have to sit down and work this out, right? That's conflict. War is when I say, I cannot tolerate being around your otherness. So I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to um, purge you from the world, vomit you out. Now that petri dish creates more and more violence because, as I mentioned, when you treat people in such a way that you see them as intolerant and evil and irredeemable and stupid, and you put all of that onto them, they will, to some extent, some of those people will acquire that projective identification. They will take it into themselves. I have a friend. It's happened to somebody I know. Um, he so he's uh you know, come middle America kind of like conservative guy politically, etc. And what he found is in the last few years, he was starting to, people were starting to think of him as kind of in all sorts of negative ways. And what happened, it was interesting talking to him at length about this, is that he started to become that but to troll. Like he was made into like he almost this was with not consciously, this does not happen consciously, is unconsciously you start to want to kind of say, You think I'm like this, I'm worse than this, right? Starts and he said and when I when I kind of interrogated him about this, he said, I started to say things I didn't believe. And what he was doing was he was actually acquiring the projective identification. He was taking it on and he didn't want it. It felt foreign to him, right? So, and that's a very human experience where you don't desire what you desire. Like somebody might want to be an artist but they end up being a lawyer and they're going like, well, they, want, they chose to be a lawyer, so they desired it, but they don't desire their desire. They're like, there's something foreign about this desire to be a lawyer. And then you discover that it's, it's the projective identification of your father, for example, who always wanted you to be a lawyer. So you acquired that desire, but you weren't able to subjectivize it to the point where you desired what you desired. So this guy was taking all this on, was without wanting to, starting to become the monster that people thought he was. And it's only as he began to realize that, that he was able to take a step back and was starting to go, okay, I don't have to take on that projective identification. I don't have to be part of this self-fulfilling prophecy. But that's a tendency of what happens. And say then what you end up doing is you create the monsters you fight. And Nietzsche was brilliant on this. He said, be careful when you fight monsters not to become one, right? He says, like, there's some weird thing where you're fighting monsters, you're creating monsters of the other, and then you become the monster in fighting it. Because bad people will always do bad things, right? So a small percentage of people, for whatever reason, they don't need an excuse. But to get good people to do bad things, you need to give them ideology. You need to... Have a a place of purity, culture, and that's how you get good people to do bad things. Because then they will do bad things in the name of love. They will do bad things in the name of beautiful soul. They will do they will do intolerant things in the name of tolerance. Right? To get good people to do bad things, you need ideology. Um. Okay, so I'll I'll give you one example, and then we'll move into the third part. Um, In Northern Ireland, where I'm from. had the troubles. The troubles kind of started in the seventies. It was a modern version of the conflict, started in the seventies and finished in nineteen ninety eight, and. That was a culture, a purity culture, where increasingly there was a weaponization of identity and hatred of the other, right? This is this increased weaponization and the fear of the other. And we have still the most peace walls in all of Europe, in all around Belfast are these walls that are built separating neighbors who actually have so much in common, live in exactly the same way and have more in common with each other uh, than people who are in the same grouping, social grouping, but who are rich, Right. So in Northern Ireland, conflict was given up for war. And this, and the only reason why it changed was because we were destroying the entire country. Like 10%, I think it was 10% of the population knew someone who had been killed or maimed in the war, right? This is like incredible amount of conflict. And eventually, because it got so bad, and remember I said the projective identification. Although it's a defense mechanism that causes these problems, it's also the the possibility of transformation. It's because everybody eventually got together, the loyalist paramilitaries, the Republican paramilitaries, the British government, the Irish government, Northern Irish uh, 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 parliamentary system, all got together and sat down in the same room, hating each other, blaming each other legitimately for lots of murder and death and torture, but literally going, we have to have conflict. We have to sit down, and we don't know where this is going to go, but we just know that it can't continue the way it is. And this was an apocalyptic moment, right? So this is why I'm not a progressive, right? So a progressive is someone, there's a progress to history, and you know where history is going. So if you love someone, you know, you love them who's different, just it's, it's patronizing, you know, they're not on the right side of history, right? You're on the right side of history, they're not, right? An apocalyptic movement is a movement it, apocalypse means the incoming of a world you can't imagine. An apocalypticist doesn't know what the future looks like. All they know is that you have to have a space where the conflict happens, and in that conflict, the new world will arise. This is very important for Hegel. It says that every time you think you know what this utopia is, death is round the corner. Uh, Stalin is the perfect example, of course, who, you know, talked about the end of history, right? And so you're, you can justify anything if you're, if you're doing it for history or for God or for, um, you know, humanity or whatever in some capital H, capital G way, right? Um, but, on a, but what happened in the Troubles was an apocalyptic moment. Everybody had to set down their vision of what the, the perfect society would look like. Everyone had to set down their idea of if only we got rid of you, it would be great. And went okay. Let's put everything on the table. And there was three days of discussion. It's called the Good Friday Agreement. And it's really interesting in the Good Friday Agreement because the Good Friday Agreement, Good Friday, is about the contradiction within the absolute. Right? God experiences the absence of God. It's you know, Christ as the um, the the weaving of chaos and and cosmos. So the Good Friday Agreement that uh, where the police force was disbanded. Um, where the border was taken down, where Northern Ireland became a contradiction, part of Ireland and part of the United Kingdom, now part of the United Kingdom and part of the European Union, right? This really interesting um, embrace of the dividedness and the antagonism was the leading to peace, that apocalyptic moment of peace. So that's an example I wanted to give of how when it gets so bad... We'll either end up completely destroying each other or we'll have to sit down with our enemies and we'll ha- and not say we like them or we love them or anything like that. No, say we hate them. But say, right, I know you hate me too. Let's talk about this. So finally, I want to talk about technologies that do this, technologies designed to help us uh, embrace the, this projective identification to cultivate that curiosity and that conversation with our unconscious. Um, that could be helpful for society. I'm going to use two examples, um, of a, of two practices developed in Northern Ireland. I developed in Northern Ireland. The first is called the Last Supper. Very briefly, the Last Supper was based on a film called the Last Supper from, like, I think, the 1980s of Cameron Diaz. And, um, the idea is, 12 people would gather in an upper room. We would eat and we would drink together. And we would invite someone who would have a very different opinion than the people in the room. And they sat in the seat of Christ for the night. And over the starter, they gave like a 20-minute talk on whatever they wanted to talk about. Over the main course, we had discussion. And then over dessert, there was a QA. and a and at the end, we decided whether it was their Last Supper or not, right? So we put them in the sight of in the seat of Christ. You know the, the, you're like you're the bringer of truth tonight. And hey, you know what we did with Jesus, right? So supposedly, by the way, uh, the Pope, the Pope met Napoleon, and the Pope had to give the Napoleon, Napoleon some sort of blessing. And as he was giving the blessing, he he reached over and whispered into the ear of Napoleon, "I know what you're trying to do. You're dis- you're trying to destroy." Um, uh, Christianity. He says, but you will never succeed. Napoleon said, why? And the Pope said, we've been trying for 2,000 years, right? So he said, like, you know what we did with Christ, right? So we might do it with you, but you're the bringer of truth. And if we can tolerate your difference, maybe you will survive the night. Now, the point of that practice is not that anything will change over one night, except you'll have fun. But if you do that once a month, for a year or two years or three years, what you will begin to see is you will begin to see in the enemy something of yourself. And not only that, the other who you invite will also potentially have a very positive experience. And I'm going to give you one example, and then I'll tell you the second technology. It was an example where somebody from the Ulster Humanist Society was invited to the Last Supper. And this group of the Last Supper were all coming from within Christianity, were part of Christianity in some way, or who had been. And so this guy was a bit uh, uptight and nervous. The Ulster Humanist Society is a very kind of quite a aggressive or was quite an aggressive organization. There was no one to be. So this guy comes along and his defenses are up. And he's thinking, I'm in this group with a pile of people who in some way associate with Christianity. And during the starter, he kind of lets loose, says all this stuff about how bad Christianity is. And then over the main course, we have a wider discussion, and everybody in the room is agreeing with him, going, yeah, in fact, you think that's bad? Listen to this, right? And they started telling stories. Now, this destabilized the whole conversation because he was expecting to meet resistance. But the group didn't either resist and they didn't acquire the projection the projective identification they didn't take it all in fact they were like yeah we can com- we completely agree and then he softened up and he was like okay yeah and, and we ended up having this beautiful conversation and then afterwards he invited me to give a talk in the also humanist society about i talked it gave a talk in Feuerbach. and then he invited me and they invited me to be on a panel on their side of a panel where they were debating the Christian Union at the university about the afterlife. Right? So it became this really ke- a chaosmos, right? At first, it was a purity culture. There was this guy from the Ulster Humanist Society, militantly atheist, thinking he was coming into a militantly kind of Christian, theistic space. That then starts to be broken down. And in the course of the night, these intertwine, and we all end up getting really getting on really well, having conversations. Then I get invited to their society to give a talk. I give a talk on one of the, you know, most famous humanists, um, far back the humanist I like the most, um, and then um, and then I get invited onto their side of the debate, right? So that's a, an example of how this technology the Last Supper kind of breaks down this purity culture uh, like a type of, uh, I don't know, uh, just like a, I don't know, an antibiotic or whatever. Um, the other technology I want to mention briefly is what's called um, the Evangelism Project, where we would go to other groups to be evangelized by them. So we would go to, say, the Islamic Society, the Jewish community, Scientology, Hare Krishna, whatever, right? We would go to these different groups. We would sit down. We would hear all about what they believed and all of that stuff. Now, the Evangelism of the evangelism project did not happen there. It's very unlikely anybody gets converted by listening to somebody speak for an hour, half an hour. Um and if they do, that that's definitely questionable. Um But uh if if um Oh yeah, but what we would do is we would then say, What do we look like to you? And then you would see what you look like to the uh, through the eyes of the other, and you would realize that you are other to yourself. You would see your own pollutions. You would see your own impurities. You would be confronted with that in this environment, in this ritual, in this technology that's designed to help you in a fun way, in an interesting way, to begin to see your own unknown face, right? And again, if you do that once or twice, it's just a fun day out. But if that is a practice that is regularly done, that can be a spiritual decentering practice that can help us uh, break down this purity culture that is really sustained by a form of projective identification. Okay, so I'll finish just by saying, oh, AA as well. I'm not going to talk about AA too much, but AA is an example where up until you go there, you might be projecting onto other people. It's their problem. It's their fault. But in AA, in a community of grace, you say, I'm the alcoholic. You take on that impurity within yourself. Oh yes, what I want to end with? You take on that impurity within yourself. And in doing that, step zero, I like to call this, right? Step zero is where you don't have to do anything. You just face your own impurity without anybody asking you to change. That's grace. So self-help is always telling you, you have to get from A to B to C to D, right? It's always pushing you forward. Grace is the, no, you don't have to do anything. I'm not all right, you're not all right, and that's all right, right, Grace is the moment in which you experience that you literally have nothing that you need to do. And yet, in the moment when you realize that there is nothing you need to do, that is the place where you can do something. That is where real change begins to happen. You stop fighting so an example would be, a true example in therapy of some, this woman who was going to therapy because she felt guilty, she was uh, sleeping around a lot, she was guilty because of, of her past, she was worried about getting herself into unsafe situations, worried about sexually transmitted diseases, and she was thinking that at least she had the guilt, because with the guilt meant that she didn't do it as much as she would otherwise maybe do it. But within therapy, uh, the therapist gradually helped to chip away at the guilt, And as he chipped away at the guilt, the fear was, oh, you get rid of the guilt and I'm just going to do this even more. This is already something that I don't really want to do too much because it might be dangerous. But as the guilt went, so did the desire to transgress the guilt. This is the Pauline notion of the abolish the laws of fulfillment of the law. And then of course you can go and sleep around a little bit, but you're not you're not driven to it. It's not like a, a obsessive, compulsive repetition where you, that you have to do. It's something that you can do freely without guilt, right? But with the removal of the guilt comes the removal of what you think the guilt is protecting you from, right? This is the notion of you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you're able to see the truth of your repressed self, not put it onto others, you're able to let it breathe, you're able to know it, to alphabetize it, to put it into language, it will set you free. You will find yourself less likely to take on the projections of others, less likely to project onto others. And while there will still be violence, there will still be difficulties, there will still be suffering. If we have communities that live this out, Across the world this provides a much healthier environment for the betterment of society okay i'm giving a talk on the transformance or decentering practices say uh later this month if you want to check that out now i'm going to see if you've got any questions um make sure this is still working brilliant Okay, Ray says, Pete, was the apocalyptic moment not the point where both sides realized they couldn't win and were stuck in an endless cycle? Sitting down together was a post-apocalyptic moment. Yeah, so that's good. I think, uh, so the apocalypse, the reason why I call it apocalyptic, and this is very connected with psychoanalysis, this is why an analyst doesn't tell you what the future looks like, right? there, Their, their job is that if you imagine a couple who... Are together for fifteen twenty years, and there's no desire left and they're doing their own thing, and there's all of this repressed anger and frustration and bitterness and it's coming out the return of the repressed is coming out their kid maybe has anorexia they're 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 working too much at their job uh someone else is drinking too much whatever right this it's coming out what's not spoken is speaking, which is what a symptom is in a sense of speaking is this is the truth speaking that cannot be spoken right so the symptoms are coming out. Um, Then you go to therapy. And the therapist doesn't kind of like paint a picture of what could be. The therapist provides a space where all of that repressed stuff can come to the surface and simply be in the room. And the idea is if you can allow that stuff to be in the room, the only thing you can be guaranteed of is that the relationship will not be the same as it was. The couple might break up. the couple might break up with the type of relationship that they've had right in order to stay together and by the way that's very common a lot of people break up with people but not with the type of relationship they have with people so they get they just have the same relationship with just different faces right More, more radical sometimes is not necessarily breaking up with the individual but breaking up with the type of relationship you have with the individual but the point being In that moment, yes, the apocalypse is simply saying, yeah, you do not know what it looks like and what the future is, but the one thing we can be guaranteed of is if the conflict is brought to the surface it will be the engine of transformation and will lead to a post-apocalyptic world so i'm just using your question as a jumping off point to say a little bit more but yeah i like what you're saying i mean you might want to call it um i I would like to call about what happened after good friday agreement that's like the post-apocalypse that was the you know um but um and the apocalyptic moment was kind of like sitting down not knowing what world you're going to create but yeah i you know those those terms are quite closely linked so thanks for the question uh ray lots of nice comments by the way thank you so much for the comments um i should have said sometimes i say when i'm giving seminars on patreon like if you've got a question write questions so i can kind of go down and see it but it's too late for that now <laughs> but thank you for the kind comments um oh yeah steve says will you say more about uh, step zero yeah this is key for me right so there's the 12 steps 12 steps are great right but in Europe, our lifts start at zero. In America, your lifts start at one. And there's some places in Europe that start zero, zero. Because zero is a one. Zero is a number, you can count it. So zero is one. Anyway, so but in Europe, the lift starts at zero. Um, and so when I talk about step zero, um, I really, it's basically, grace is the technology of transformation, right? That's it. I don't know if I should... Yeah, okay, I'm going to say a bit. You start started me. Um, right, the whole thing about Oedipus, the Oedipus complex, right, is Oedipus wants... From the Freudian perspective, Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother. His father gets in the way, says you can't. This is all unbeknownst to him. He doesn't really know who his real father and mother is. He ends up killing his father and sleeping with his mother. And it's a disaster, right? She, she gets her eyes plucked out, all of this. Um, so the point is, symbolically or structurally... The the mother is a symbol of oceanic oneness, getting what you want, getting the thing that you desire, going back to the womb before contradiction, right? The uh, the molly experience, right? Going back before you know the the the, the experience of, of of language of symbolism. Um, the father is what gets in the way of that, right? Then you kill a father, get what you want, and you realize it's a disaster. So it's a really a way of saying, be careful what you want. Only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize that your dreams do not fulfill you. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because the Bible starts with an eatable structure, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. There's the fruit. Uh, there's a serpent. There's a, a prohibition. A serpent says, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. I, you will lack the lack. You will be whole and complete, right? The traditional notion of God is the one who lacks lack, right? So they break the prohibition. They eat the fruit, and it's a disaster. They think it's going to be wonderful, and it's not. Now, in Freud, you have the superego, which is the internal, external voice that's always saying, if only you had more friends, if you only had, you had more sex, if only you were going out more, if only you had a better job, if only you were nicer to your mum, if only, if only, if only. And mostly, by the way, it's a hedonistic if only. If only you could just do it, if only you could do more, be more like, you know, be all that you can be. <laughs> and this, this tyranny of satisfaction, this tyranny of happiness that makes us anxious, in, in, that's called the serpent. In the 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 in Genesis, the, this voice that says, "If only you eat this fruit, then you will be whole and complete." Grace is the technology that does not obey the super ego serpent, but rather exorcises the super ego serpent that realizes the answer is not in getting what you want, but rather in freedom from getting what you want. Right. It's great to be free to pursue what will make you happy, but we also need freedom from the pursuit of what will make us happy. This is the technology of grace. Grace is the exorcising of this frenetic pursuit of wholeness and completeness, certainty and satisfaction that, that, that pursuit which, which gives always its opposite. Whereas grace is the freedom and that the freedom to not pursue is then the place where you can do the 12 steps. It's the place where you can begin to make change because you're not doing it frantically in order to overcome your contradictions. You're doing it to to kind of improve your life in small, non-special ways. This is when Anna Freud once said, uh, in your dreams, you can make the perfect omelet. You just can't eat it. Right. In other words, we fantasize perfection. Perfection. And that fantasy of perfection is great to think about, but you can't you can't eat that perfection. You can't live within it, right? Real omelettes are never going to taste as good as the omelette that you dream about, but it's a real omelette that will give you some sort of satisfaction, right? Um, and uh, yeah, we could get into that more, but that's, that's oh, Gerard, one more thing and I'll get back to the questions. Rene Gerard has a beautiful parable about this where he says, there's a man who is told that there is a treasure under a rock in a field, After looking under so many rocks and not finding a treasure, eventually the man finds a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it. This beautiful analogy of how we... We want a fantasy of perfection and wholeness of something, whether it's winning the lottery or whatever it is, is going to fix everything. And we're terrified of losing the fantasy, even though we never get it. And we'd rather find a way of sustaining that fantasy than the terror of lifting up the rock and realizing the fantasy doesn't exist. However, it's only in realizing that that fantasy doesn't exist that you can um, actually enjoy your life in some sort of more real way. Um, how does a person respond, says Christy, when treated as the other by others? Yeah. So the big thing is very difficult. And this is why I think actually one of the ways to train is actually to do psychoanalysis. I mean, I got to say, like, if, if, if one is in this line of work, or even if just one wants to cultivate this curiosity and conversation with the unconscious, um, psychoanalysis is a, is a great technology to use. The reason why I say that is that as you become very aware of this dimension, you are less likely to take on the projections of others. So I have this all the time, not all the time, but in my line of work, you get sometimes people projecting ideals and the object onto you. So either you're the most amazing thing ever or you're the most terrible thing ever, right? And it doesn't happen very often. Most times it's just people like you or don't. And that's, that's not pathological. This is, I'm talking about something where people really angry, really frustrated. Um, and, there was a time maybe when I was young that that, that I would have acquired that projective identification. But now I, I don't. And it's partly in my training. It's partly in psychoanalysis, all of that. Um, but it's, it's, but it's, um, it's not. It's not something that's just natural. It's one has to learn it, like because we all get our backs up. And by the way, there's always something. All of us have our little triggers, right? There's, you know. But um, but we can, through training and, and and doing analysis and becoming very more aware of our own unconscious, we can um, let it roll off us a lot easier. Now, of course, it's more difficult if it's a family member or a close friend. Sometimes you have to just distance yourself from them, absolutely, because it's not some stranger on the internet that you can just mute, right? It's somebody who's in your circle. And by the way, it's always someone who has some proximity to you, right? It's never someone who's completely outside. Like, nobody cares about the impurity, and in inverted commas, of some other who lives in some fantasized land. It's always the impurity of someone who's got some relation to you, so often, you know, one has to, just for physical health, separate yourself. But psychologically, um, through things like psychoanalysis, or the Last Supper, or the Evangelism Project, or there's other technologies, one becomes comfortable with one's own sense of self And becomes less likely to acquire and that you will still be pushed onto you. Like people, I feel it all the time. Like people will sometimes try to make me angry on Twitter. They're not consciously, but you can know that they're trying to evoke an anger. Um, but once you, once you become aware of that, you see it, you see what they're trying to tell you, which is that they're angry with themselves. There's some part of themselves that is, that is, that, that is, that they are condemning that they hate and they despise. And they've, they've put that out to, to protect themselves from it, right? To, to punch at it, to punch at that part of themselves that they do not like. And once you realize that, sometimes you can actually be of help to them, depending on the environment. Sometimes, and, and I've had that a lot in my work where sometimes if it happens at an event, I had it happen at an event once and at the end it was in a bar. I bought a couple of drinks. I went up to the person who shouted at me during the talk. We sat down, we had an amazing conversation. He apologized straight away, lovely guy, and just said, I'm really sorry. I said, um, I'm fighting myself. You know, you said some stuff that just triggered me because there's some parts of myself I haven't opened the door to. And I've had that numerous times where in an environment where I feel safe and I'm maybe the authority figure in the room so I can do that, I'm able to... Uh, go up to the person in a non-aggressive way, not acquire the projective identification, but feel it. And that allows me to ask the right question. So when I sat down with that person, I was able to say, you know, listen, what's going on? man? you know, there's, I can see a frustration in you, right? Because I knew that because he was trying to make me frustrated. (laughs) I, I could see that he was scared of doubt. So I was able to ask him, like, are you struggling with doubt? Because the projective identification told me everything I needed to know in order to start the conversation and there, therefore potentially help that person a little bit in there, in where they were. Yeah. That was helpful. Um, Celeste, question. What is it, personally? What is it allow? some people to desire learning about others and some people want to shut out others? Yeah, no, I, like, I honestly think that we're talking about very basic structures here that are that there is, when I talk about purity culture, obviously in, the, in this talk, I've connected it with, you know, our subjectivity and what it is to be conscious. And so I've connected it very deeply with what it means to be human. Um, so I think all of us have, are prone to, uh, these, these situations and they manifest differently. For different, different, in different structures. So there's, in psychoanalysis, there's three structures, neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. And basically, depending on which structure we tend towards, uh, we will have different responses to protecting ourselves from the other. I guess the thing I'll say is that all of us, when our defenses are up and when we feel threatened, will be less likely to want to encounter the other and less likely to, to encounter the, the otherness that's within us that the other brings to the surface. But if we can create spaces that are not aggressive, that are not defensive, like the analyst, the analyst room, where you can shout and scream at the analyst, tell them they're just doing it for the money, they don't care about you, they hate you, you hate them, and the analyst will say at the end, oh, see you same time next week, right? So there's, a, there's no, as long as the analyst doesn't get caught, caught up in, Counter um, identification, right? Then they're able to contain it all, which creates the, then the person has this freedom and they can begin to open up. So if I say to you, you're terrible to your mum, look how you treat her. as Mother's Day, actually, it's fine. So you're terrible. You might go, yes, yeah, you don't know what she's like. She's a nightmare. She's mustard, right? But if I say, if I buy you a coffee, go out and we have a general chat, and then I say to you, you know, you seem pretty stressed at the moment. Is there anything going on? we we start talking about it and then and I say oh you know like i, feel, I really feel like your mum got it in the neck and and then you're more likely of course to go yeah like i really shouldn't have taken it out on her because direct communication is always indirect so direct communication doesn't work kiragor says that indirect communication is the most direct communication right you have to be indirect to get around the defenses in order to be able to speak so for me mostly what we have to try to do is to create those spaces of non-defensiveness where people can can let loose and be angry and be frustrated and shout and scream and do all of that, and know that it's safe, and then can begin to start to to realise that what they're doing is they're shouting at themselves, and that happens. So I th- and I think we you know whoever we are you know those environments will help us all. Um, to do um and then steve says oh i think i answered that how does it relate how does step zero relate to purity and impurity well yeah step zero is where you go i'm an alcoholic so what i love about aa is you can sit in the circle as long as you want not say anything but eventually if you feel up for it you'll say you know my name's pete and i'm an alcoholic right and uh What you're doing is maybe you've denied it up until then, but now you are accepting that part of yourself that you used to be in denial. Because one of the most obvious addiction defenses is denial, where you say, I am not what I am. Now, it's funny, like if 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 you say, are you an alcoholic? And I say, no, you could go, that's denial. You're definitely an alcoholic. And I say, no, I'm really not. Well, that's even more denial, right? But that's not what denial is. Denial is when someone denies something that you never ask them to deny. So maybe you're at a party and the person goes, listen, I'm going to go down to the shop, get some more alcohol for everybody. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic or anything. Okay, right. So that's interesting because you never asked if they were, right? So they told you that they're not an alcoholic. That's where they're denying something. Sometimes it's a hint that maybe they're denying that aspect of themselves. It's like on Instagram and people are constantly telling you that they're happy. It's usually a sign that they're not, right? Because why else are they constantly having to tell you that they're happy? Well, they're not telling you. They're telling themselves, right? There's all these, you know, pictures of couples and all. They're telling themselves that they're happy because they're not able to tolerate that, 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 that uh, unhappy dimension of their relationship. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that's that's how it relates. Um, oh yeah, Kev says, uh, do you read the parable of the Good Samaritan as a critique of purity culture and other other parables? Yes, absolutely, Kev. In fact, the thing about the Gospels is they're they're actually full of this critique of purity culture, and Good Samaritan is a great example of it. Um, and sometimes I don't mention any of the Bible stuff because then people do the work and find it themselves. So, but, and thank you for bringing that up because I think that is a great example of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no Caleb sitting on the stool. Lucky, I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, Kate, hello, Kate. Does this have a relation to? Uh, Revelation 3, 15 and 19. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. How I wish you could be one or the other. So because you're warm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my voice. Haha, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I know that. Uh, you say I am rich, I've grown wealthy, but you not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may be clothed, and your shameful nakedness not exposed, and salve to oint, uh, anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be earnest and repent. Yeah, I think there's <clears throat> there's definitely something you could do there, especially the um, the second part of that. So, how's you anything? but yeah, okay. I'm now I'm reading it and thinking, but that might bring me into another talk. So I'm going to leave that and go like, yes, I think there's something really interesting there, and um, uh, maybe think about it for the next talk I do at the end of the month. Um, okay I think we're getting near the end I can't shouldn't keep you on forever I'm just going down um, lots and lots oh thank you Kate for putting that stuff up with Peter Owens. Okay, I think that's us. My goodness, we've been going for, well, you know, just just over an hour. So it wasn't too bad. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to Jay for inviting me to be part of Revolution. If you like this stuff and you're interested in being part of my festival, it's music, it's poetry, it's not all me talking, but I will be talking in interviews and you can ask me questions. There'll be comedy, all of that. Go to my website. Um, we might post a link up. Uh, in the comments Um, it's 55 bucks for nine hours of material and uh, so you can dip in and out you can watch it later and I'm very excited because I travel back there in two days so thank you for joining me take care bye-bye We'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website.